Section 33 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men and Things by William Hazlitt. Section 33. On a Portrait of an English Lady by Van Dyke. Part 1. The portrait I speak of is in the Louvre, where it is numbered 416, and the only account of it in the catalogue is that of a lady and her daughter. It is companion to another whole length by the same artist, number 417, of a gentleman and a little girl. Both are evidently English. The face of the lady has nothing very remarkable in it, but that it may be said to be the very perfection of the English female face. It is not particularly beautiful, but there is a sweetness in it, and a goodness conjoined, which is inexpressibly delightful. The smooth ivory forehead is a little ruffled, as if some slight cause of uneasiness, like a cloud, had just passed over it. The eyes are raised with a look of timid attention. The mouth is compressed with modest sensibility. The complexion is delicate and clear, and over the whole figure, which is seated, there reign the utmost propriety and decorum. The habitual gentleness of the character seems to have been dashed with some anxious thought or momentary disquiet, and, like the shrinking flower, in whose leaves the lucid drop yet trembles, looks out and smiles at the storm that is overblown. A mother's tenderness, a mother's fear, appears to flutter on the surface and on the extreme verge of the expression, and not to have quite subsided into thoughtless indifference or mild composure. There is a reflection of the same expression in the little child at her knee, who turns her head round with a certain appearance of constraint and innocent wonder, and perhaps it is the difficulty of getting her to sit, or to sit still, that has caused the transient contraction of her mother's brow, that lovely unstained mirror of pure affection, too fair, too delicate, too soft and feminine, for the breath of serious misfortune, ever to come near, or not to crush it. It is a face, in short, of the greatest purity and sensibility, sweetness and simplicity, or such as Chaucer might have described, where all is conscience and tender heart. I have said that it is an English face, and I may add, without being invidious, that it is not a French one. I will not say that they have no face to equal this, 
of that I am not a judge. But I am sure they have no faith equal to this in the qualities by which it is distinguished. They may have faces as amiable, but then the possessors of them will be conscious of it. There may be equal elegance, but not the same ease. There may be even greater intelligence, but without the innocence. More vivacity, but then it will run into petulance and coquetry. In short, there may be every other good quality, but a total absence of all pretension to, or wish to make a display of it, but the same unaffected modesty and simplicity. In French faces, and I have seen some that were charming, both for the features and expression, there is a varnish of insincerity, a something theatrical or meretricious. But here, every particle is pure to the last recesses of the mind. The face, such as it is, and it has a considerable share both of beauty and meaning, is without the smallest alloy of affectation. There is no false glitter in the eyes to make them look brighter, no little wrinkles about the corners of the eyelids, the effect of self-conceit, no pursing up of the mouth, no significant leer, no primness, no extravagance, no assumed levity, or gravity. You have the genuine text of nature, without gloss or comment. There is no heightening of conscious charms to produce greater effect, no studying of airs and graces in the glass of vanity. You have not the remotest hint of the milliner, the dancing-master, the dealer in paints and patches. You have before you a real English lady of the seventeenth century, who looks like one, because she cannot look otherwise, whose expression of sweetness, intelligence, or concern is just what is natural to her, and what the occasion requires, whose entire demeanour is the emanation of her habitual sentiments and disposition, and who is as free from guile or affectation as the little child by her side. I repeat that this is not the distinguishing character of the French physiognomy, which at its best is often spoiled by a consciousness of what it is, and a restless desire to be something more. Goodness of disposition, with a clear complexion and handsome features, is the chief ingredient in English beauty. There is a great difference in this respect between Van Dyck's portraits of women and Titian's, of which we may find examples, in the Louvre. The picture which goes by the name of his mistress is one of the most celebrated of the latter. The neck of this picture is like a broad crystal mirror, and the hair which she holds so carelessly in her hand is like meshes of beaten gold. The eyes which roll in their ample sockets like two shining orbs, and which are turned away from the spectator, only dart their glances the more powerfully into the soul. And the whole picture is a paragon of frank cordial grace and transparent brilliancy of colouring. Her tight bodice 
compresses her full but finely proportioned waist, while the tucker in part conceals and almost clasps the snowy bosom. But you never think of anything beyond the personal attractions and a certain sparkling intelligence. She is not marble, but a fine piece of animated clay. There is none of that retired and shrinking character, that modesty of demeanour, that sensitive delicacy, that starts even at the shadow of evil, that are so evidently to be traced in the portrait by Van Dyck. Still, there is no positive vice, no meanness, no hypocrisy, but an unconstrained elastic spirit of self-enjoyment, more bent on the end than scrupulous about the means, with firmly braced nerves and a tincture of vulgarity. She is not like an English lady, nor like a lady at all. But she is a very fine servant girl, conscious of her advantages, and willing to make the most of them. In fact, Titian's mistress answers exactly, I conceive, to the idea conveyed by the English word sweetheart. The Marchioness of Guasto is a fair comparison. She is by the supposition a lady, but still an Italian one. There is a honeyed richness about the texture of the skin, and her air is languid from a sense of pleasure. Her dress, though modest, has the marks of studied coquetry about it. It touches the very limits which it dares not pass, and her eyes, which are bashful and downcast, do not seem to droop under the fear of observation, but to retire from the gaze of kindled admiration, as if they thrilled frail hearts, yet quenched not. One might say, with Othello, of the hand with which she holds the globe that is offered to her acceptance. This hand of yours requires a sequester from liberty, fasting and prayer, much castigation, exercise devout. For here's a young and sweating devil here that commonly rebels. The hands of Van Dyck's portrait have the purity and coldness of marble. The colour of the face is such as might be breathed upon it by the refreshing breeze. That of the Marchioness of Guastos is like the glow it might imbibe from a golden sunset. The expression in the English lady springs from her duties and her affections. That of the Italian Countess inclines more to her ease and pleasures. The Marchioness of Guasto was one of three sisters to whom it is said the inhabitants of Pisa proposed to pay divine honours in the manner that beauty was worshipped by the fabulous enthusiasts of old. Her husband seems to have participated in the common infatuation from the fanciful homage that is paid to her in this allegorical composition, and if she was at all intoxicated by the incense offered to her vanity, the painter must be allowed to have qualified the expression of it very craftily. I pass on to another female face and figure, that of the Virgin, in the beautiful picture of The Presentation in the Temple by Guido. The expression here is ideal, and has a reference to visionary objects and feelings. 
It is marked by an abstraction from outward impressions, a downcast look, an elevated brow, an absorption of purpose, a stillness and resignation that become the person and the scene in which she is engaged. The colour is pale and gone, so that purified from every grossness, dead to worldly passions, she almost seems like a statue kneeling, with knees bent and hands uplifted. Her motionless figure appears supported by a soul within, all whose thoughts, from the low ground of humility, tend heavenward. We find none of the triumphant buoyancy of health and spirit, as in the Titian's mistress, nor the luxurious softness of the portrait of the Marchioness of Guasto, nor the flexible, tremulous sensibility, nor the anxious attention to passing circumstances, nor the familiar look of the lady by Van Dyke. On the contrary, there is a complete unity and concentration of expression. The whole is wrought up and moulded into one intense feeling, but that feeling fixed on objects remote, refined, and ethereal, as the form of the fair supplicant. A still greater contrast to this internal, or, as it were, introverted expression, is to be found in the group of female heads by the same artist, Guido, in his picture of The Flight of Paris and Helen. They are the last three heads on the left-hand side of the picture. They are thrown into every variety of attitude, as if to take the heart by surprise at every avenue. A tender warmth is suffused over their faces. Their headdresses are airy and fanciful, their complexion sparkling and glossy. Their features seem to catch pleasure from every surrounding object, and to reflect it back again. Vanity, beauty, gaiety glance from their conscious looks and wreathed smiles, like the changing colours from the ring-dove's neck. To sharpen the effect and point the moral, they are accompanied by a little negro boy, who holds up the train of elegance, fashion, and voluptuous grace. Guido was the gentilest of painters. He was a poetical Van Dyke. The latter could give, with inimitable and perfect skill, the airs and graces of people of fashion under their daily and habitual aspects, or as he might see them in a looking-glass. The former saw them in his mind's eye, and could transform them into supposed characters and imaginary situations. Still the elements were the same. Van Dyke gave them with the mannerism of habit and the individual details, Guido, as they were rounded into grace and smoothness, by the breath of fancy, and borne along by the tide of sentiment. Guido did not want the ideal faculty, though he wanted strength and variety. There is an effeminacy about his pictures, for he gave only the different modifications of beauty. It was the goddess that inspired him, the siren that seduced him, and whether as saint or sinner, was equally welcome to him. His creations are as frail as they are fair, they all turn on a passion for beauty, and without this support are nothing. He could paint beauty, combined with pleasure or sweetness, or grief or devotion, but unless it were the groundwork and the primary condition of his performance, 
he became insipid, ridiculous, and extravagant. There is one thing to be said in his favour. He knew his own powers, or followed his own inclinations, and the delicacy of his tact in general prevented him from attempting subjects uncongenial with it. He trod the primrose path of dalliance with equal prudence and modesty. That he is a little monotonous and tame is all that can be said against him. And he seldom went out of his way to expose his deficiencies in a glaring point of view. He came round to subjects of beauty at last, or gave them that turn. A story is told of his having painted a very lovely head of a girl, and being asked from whom he had taken it, he replied, From his old man. This is not unlikely. He is the only great painter, except Correggio, who appears constantly to have subjected what he saw to an imaginary standard. His Magdalens are more beautiful than sorrowful. In his Madonnas there is more of sweetness and modesty than of elevation. He makes but little difference between his heroes and his heroines. His angels are women, and his women angels. If it be said that he repeated himself too often, and has painted too many Magdalens and Madonnas, I can only say in answer, would he had painted twice as many. If Guido wanted compass and variety in his art, it signifies little, since what he wanted is abundantly supplied by others. He had softness, delicacy, and ideal grace in a supreme degree, and his fame rests on these, as the cloud on the rock. It is to the highest point of excellence, in any art or department, that we look back with gratitude and admiration, as it is the highest mountain peak that we catch in the distance, and lose sight of it only when it turns to air. I know of no other difference between Raphael and Guido than that the one was twice the man the other was. Raphael was a bolder genius, and invented according to nature. Guido only made draughts after his own disposition and character. There is a common cant of criticism which makes Titian merely a colourist. What he really wanted was invention. He had expression in the highest degree. I declare that I have seen heads of his with more meaning in them than any of Raphael's. But he fell short of Raphael in this, that, except in one or two instances, he could not heighten and adapt the expression that he saw to different and more striking circumstances. He gave more of what he saw than any other painter that ever lived, and in the imitative part of his art had a more universal genius than Raphael had in composition and invention. Beyond the actual and habitual look of nature, however, the demon that he served deserted him, or became a very tame one. Van Dyck gave more of the general air and manners of fashionable life than of individual character, and the subjects that he treated are neither remarkable for intellect nor passion. They are people of polished manners, and placid constitutions, and many of the very best of them are stupidly good. Titian's portraits, on the other hand, frequently present a much more formidable than inviting appearance. You would hardly trust yourself in a room with them. You do not bestow a cold, leisurely approbation upon them, 
but look to see what they may be thinking of you, not without some apprehension for the result. They have not the clear, smooth skins, or the even pulse, that Van Dyck's seem to possess. They are, for the most part, fierce, wary, voluptuous, subtle, haughty. Raphael painted Italian faces as well as Titian, but he threw into them a character of intellect rather than of temperament. In Titian the irritability takes the lead, sharpens and gives direction to the understanding. There seems to be a personal controversy between the spectator and the individual whose portrait he contemplates, which shall be master of the other. I may refer to two portraits in the Louvre, the one by Raphael, the other by Titian, numbers 1153 and 1210, in illustration of these remarks. I do not know two finer or more characteristic specimens of these masters, each in its way. The one is of a student dressed in black, absorbed in thought, intent on some problem, with the hands crossed and leaning on a table for support, as it were to give freer scope to the labour of the brain, and though the eyes are directed towards you, it is with evident absence of mind. Not so the other portrait, number 1210. All its faculties are collected to see what it can make of you, as if you had intruded upon it with some hostile design. It takes a defensive attitude, and shows as much vigilance as dignity. It draws itself up, as if to say, Well, what do you think of me? And exercises a discretionary power over you. It has an eye to threaten and command, not to be lost in idle thought, or in ruminating over some abstruse speculative proposition. It is this intense personal character which I think gives the superiority to Titian's portraits over all others, and stamps them with a living and permanent interest. Of other pictures you tire, if you have them constantly before you. Of his, never. For other pictures have either an abstracted look, and you dismiss them, when you have made up your mind on the subject as a matter of criticism, or an heroic look, and you cannot be always straining your enthusiasm, or an insipid look, and you sicken of it. But whenever you turn to look at Titian's portraits, they appear to be looking at you. There seems to be some question pending between you, as though an intimate friend or inveterate foe were in the room with you. They exert a kind of fascinating power, and there is that exact resemblance of individual nature, which is always new and always interesting, because you cannot carry away a mental abstraction of it, and you must recur to the object, to revive it in its full force and integrity. I would as soon have Raphael's, or most other pictures hanging up in a collection, that I might pay an occasional visit to them. Titians are the only ones that I should wish to have hanging in the same room with me, for company. End of section 33